Jono and Clips, and good morning, everyone. We turn this morning to Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 2, beginning to read at verses 4 through to verses 11. Paul's letter to the Philippines, or to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning to read at verses 4 through to verses 11. Let's read together. Let each of you not only, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, may the entrance of your word bring us life. Amen. So today is the fourth of the twelve sermons in our series called Unshakable Hope. So far in this series, we have looked at the certainty of hope. We have looked at the future hope. And last week we looked at the glorious hope. This morning we're going to be looking at what we've called the great reversal. Now our aim for this series is to remind ourselves of the hope we have in Jesus. What we're seeking to do through this series is to do what the psalmist often do, which is preaching the truth to themselves. Again and again in the Psalms, we hear the psalmist crying out, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? And before he gives an answer to his own question, he bursts out with exhortation, Hope in God, for you will yet praise him in the land of the living. My salvation, my God. Hope in God, O my soul. Look up, O my soul. Search for more expensive horizons. Look beyond what your eyes can see. That's what the psalmist is saying to himself. The great Puritans of the 16th and the 17th century have described this as the art of preaching the gospel to ourselves. John Piper calls it a way for us to fight despondence 
and spiritual down or downcast spirit by preaching the truth to ourselves about God and his promises. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is key in overcoming spiritual depression. And listen to what he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So that's what we're hoping or aiming to do with this series, to remind ourselves of the hope we have in Jesus, to speak to ourselves, to learn the art of preaching the gospel. Hope in God, O oh my soul. But also we, our aim for this series is that we, it will enable us to get hold of this hope. To allow this hope to permeate all our being and to shape how we live our everyday lives. To shape how we face difficult seasons and seasons of uncertainty. To remind ourselves of the hope we have in God. To get hold of this hope that this hope will shape how we live our everyday life. John Maltimon wrote a book called The Theology of Hope. And in that book, he argues that there are two sins that we often commit with regards to hope. And he calls them that optimism and despair. Those are the two sins that we commit. And by optimism, he means the presumptuous hope. This hope, this over-realized hope. Baseless and ungrounded hope. The hope that seeks to deny the reality. Make as if the reality doesn't exist. And the song that just, we've just sang helps us to wake up from that reality. Because it says, when should this life bring suffering? Suggesting that this life will bring suffering. So that's the kind of scene that we commit. The second one is despair. And this means when you look in the situation that you're going through and come out with a conclusion that nothing good will ever come out of this situation. This is the end of me. Evil will have final say over my situation. John says both of these attitudes towards hope are non-Christian. A Christian is not a denialist. Yet a Christian doesn't allow despair to dictate how the future will look like. This is why the cross of Christ is central to our faith. Because the cross does not deny the reality. This is why people have advised us again and again that when we find ourselves in that space where nothing seems to be making sense, where we find that despair is the order of the day, what we should do in those times is to come and stand at the foot of the cross. You see, because when we do that, we find ourselves in the company of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We find ourselves in the company of Mary Magdalene. We find ourselves in the company of John the Beloved. 
all of us looking on Jesus with tearful eyes. We leave that day saying to ourselves, evil have triumphed over good. But two days later, we come back in the same scene. We find the stone rolled away. We go inside the tomb. We have a conversation with the angels. They tell us that he is not here. He is risen. Let's go and tell. That is the story of Christianity. We don't deny reality that drains us and brings us down. This week I had a coffee with a friend. He does rock climbing for whatever. It's part of his living and other things that he likes to do. And before COVID, he, he was traveling around the world, taking his clients, exposing them to this experience of rock climbing. I don't know why would anyone do that to themselves. Spend money to climb rocks. But that's where he comes alive. That's, that's where he's a Christ follower, but he sees the reality of God even more when he's in that space. And he says to me, see, I, I found myself, because I'm unable to travel uh, abroad and do the thing I love the most, I find myself regularly going down the road of self-pity. And then he says, then I look and think, where is this coming from? What could have caused me to feel this way? Because I'm grateful for the good health or fairly good health that I have, that my wife also has. I'm grateful that we still end well and we live in a place that we love to live at. So, so why do I find myself wallowing in self-pity? And we were talking about the psalmist preaching to themselves. So what I've done, I've given you big ideas behind this new series that we're working in. These are the thoughts that are undergirding this series that we are going through. We want to be reminded of hope. Yes, Christian people are people of hope, but hope is hard to sustain. There are many enemies of hope. That's what Martin Lloyd is talking about. When we begin to listen to ourselves, there goes our hope. There goes our joy. And in those times when we see that hope being stolen away from us, we remind ourselves by learning the art of preaching the gospel to ourselves. This morning we come to hope down to earth. So far in this series we've been looking to the glorious hope, future hope. But today we're looking at hope down to earth. That's what Paul is telling us in this passage. That's what Paul wants us to get hold of as he shows to us Jesus who was resolute and committed to the project of rescuing us. He was willing to do anything to see us being rescued. Here in this passage, we see the Son who is obedient to the Father to the point of death. 
That's what we see in this passage. But Paul emphasized something here that, that not just any death, but death on a cross. There is an emphasis there. This is not just any death. This is death of shame. This is death set apart for different people, for certain people in the society. But here was the Son of God who was innocent. He was willing to go and suffer in order to rescue us. Paul tells us that he humbled himself. This is eight. He made himself a nobody. The translation we read from, he says, he emptied himself. Here we have God in his own house becoming a downstairs citizen. Becoming a downstairs servant in the house he owns. Again, a friend of mine was doing a job for somebody in the city who lives in an affluent um, suburb here in the city. And so he was working, fixing their deck and pool and all that story. And the 10-year-old came by and had a conversation with him. And the father was working downstairs, upstairs. And he overheard something that he didn't like, which his son said to the man. So he gently made his way downstairs. And he asked his son, what did you say to the gentleman? And the son repeated it. And then the father kind of coached him and said, no, you don't say that. You see, he's probably the same age as me, and uh, he's helping us in the family, so I would expect you to treat him in the same way you would treat any one of our family. And he went back upstairs. That's not what Jesus did. He did not come downstairs to sort something out, and he left. He came downstairs, and he became a servant. He became one with us. Surely then, this is hope down to earth. Jesus stepping down into our world in order to bring light, life, and hope to our world of darkness and death. John the Baptist, I like the way he puts it. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Four words that changed the entire universe. The word became flesh. Skin and bones and blood. That is the reality of Jesus. The Son of God became human and he set his tent among us. On Christmas Sunday uh, service, I said, if I move into a new neighborhood and build a mansion with high walls and electric fences on top and cameras, that says something about me in the way I want to relate with my neighbors. What it says is that I love the neighborhood. I love the association, the status and the class associated with this neighborhood. But you see, I'm not interested in you neighbors. Stay out of my house. That's what that says. 
But if I come into a new neighborhood and pitch a tent in your backyard, that says you and I are going to know each other well during this course of this time. Because I'm going to need your kitchen. I'm going to need your bathroom. Because my tent cannot provide that. That's what Jesus did. He did not come and build a mansion with high walls and electric fences and cameras to keep us away. He came and he pitched a tent in our backyard. Eugene Peterson, he says, he built his tent in our neighborhood. Jesus became our neighbor. And that is this hope down to earth. We follow a Savior who had suffered. We follow a Savior who came not to take, but to give. We follow a Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. Those are great reversals. This doctrine, it's called the doctrine of incarnation. God becoming man. What are the benefits? What Christ have achieved for us through the incarnation? Keller calls it the great reversals that are at the heart of the gospel. They are at the heart of the gospel because they show us the good news in the exchange, in the exchanging of places with us. Him coming down from heaven to earth that we might go from earth to heaven. That's a great exchange. That's a gospel. Paul in, in the letter to Corinthians, he says, he was rich and became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. That's a very dangerous statement in our society today because we measure wealth and, rich and richness with materialism. But I know a lot of people who are rich and they have nothing materialistic to show. But every time I walk away from them, I feel better. I feel I have become a better person. I've got a different perspective. When we say here, through his poverty we became rich, we're not talking about us driving Porsche outside the parking lot. We may not be able to drive Porsche and all other big names. Yet, we are rich because of what Christ has done. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. His curse was our blessing. Yet again, Jesus does not remain a baby of Christmas. Or he does not remain a victim of Easter, of that Good Friday. Christian story doesn't end on Christmas and Easter. No! Christmas story continues. I mean, Christian story continues. Jesus does not remain a baby. He does not remain a victim of that Good Friday. No, Paul tells us that God raised him and exalted him in the highest place. 
and gave him the name that is above every name. Risen, exalted, victorious, and reigning. That's the Jesus who should be at the heart of our worship. Not Jesus, the baby Jesus of Christmas. Not the one who is the victim on the cross. No. He is risen. He is victorious. He is exalted. He is reigning. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He should be at the heart of our worship today. That's what his, his incarnation achieved for us. It gave us a great reversal. How do we apply this message? How is this message should shape us as we leave this room, this building today, as we interact with different people during the course of the week? Well, the first thing that needs to be said, the example Christ set for us is challenging in many, many levels. This is a call to a counterculture to live contrary and different to the culture in which we live. It is a challenge, first of all, to our individualism culture. A, a Christian economist was in a conversation with one of the guys who, who run a number of podcasts. And he described the, the, the society today as cash rich and time poor. He said, they are yearning for community, but unwilling to pay the price for community. As they realize within themselves, I need to belong, I need to be in a place where I share and, and receive, but no, I don't think I, I, I can do that. Unwilling to pay the price. That's the society in which we find ourselves. Now here Paul gives us a pattern of the kind of community we need to become. A community shaped by the reality of Jesus. That's what verses 5 and verses 11 is about. It's about this community shaped by the reality of Jesus. Paul is expounding the reality of Jesus to shape our relating, how we relate with one another. We are told in our relationship with one another, we are to say we are to have the same mindset Jesus had. In other words, if I am going to live as a Christian, the first thing I need to get rid of is my consumerism attitude. What can I get? What's in it for me? If you're going to live this week as a Christian, you need to get rid of that consumerism attitude. If you're going to follow this high standard of example Jesus set for us, that's what you need to get rid of. And we all have it. If you want to see the people who demonstrated beautifully to us, these children, and we hope that they're going to grow and outgrown it. I don't think they outgrown it. They just manage it. They just, when they become adults, good at hiding it. It's there in every one of us. We come for what we want, 
But here Jesus set the example. He came from heaven, made himself a nobody, became a human, not to get, but to give. His mindset was not to, was not to come and get what he wants and run away. No, that was not his mindset. And Paul says that same mindset should be in us. It should shape how we relate with one another. How does this look like practically? Well, at the least, it may require you praying when we come together. Lord, show me the person I can serve today. As we gather together, show me the person I can serve. It can be a small practical gesture. It might be a word in season. You don't know what that person is going through. And you are obedient to what God tells you. And you say it to that person. Have you noticed something else in our passage? The diversity. On the one hand, we need to walk away from individualism and consumerism. But also we must embrace the diversity that is offered in this passage. The story of this passage ends in verses 9 and 11. It ends with every knee bowing at the name of Jesus. It ends when every tongue acknowledges Jesus is Lord. That's where all our story will end. You and I will stand face to face with Jesus. And whatever we did and thought about him, at that time we will know that he is Lord. There is diversity in this community. Different nationalities, different ages, different social groups. So if you come to the church only expecting your type, I want to say to you, you came to the wrong place. You see, because if that's what every tongue and every knee will do when Jesus, on that final day, in the church, God has allowed all those diversities to participate in that story, in the fulfillment of that story. Paul is not naive to the fact that living in this community is not going to be easy. This is why he tells us in verses 4, he gives us this exhortation that we are to put others' interest before our own. In verses 14, he says, we must do good without grumbling. Telling people to see what I've done and what they have not done. Have you noticed when we do that, how we lose our joy? That is the sacrifice. That's how we are to live with one another. And then Paul ends this beautifully as we come to the Lord's table. He ends it with, something of a benediction. He says to them, if you do this, you will shine like stars in the sky. Why do we need bright stars? Because there are dark skies. He takes that metaphor, he applies to them, he says, you are bright stars because there is dark world. 
If you serve one another, you get rid of your selfishness, you will shine like stars in the sky. That's what you and I are called to be. People of hope who shine like stars in the dark world. As we come to this beautiful table, which reminds us what Jesus did, and I've already expounded it. What we're doing as we break this bread and drink this cup, we are putting that hope in action. Because Jesus said, do this till I come. You do it to remember me.